Opinions expressed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions. Get social with the Unelectables. You can find us on Twitter at Unelectables. And on Facebook at Unelectables Pod. are somewhat reluctant, but nevertheless resolved to present Alberta Votes 2019. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode, oh god, I don't know, what is this, episode 5, Kirk? I I think so, hold on. One, two, yes. Okay, you're the math guy, so I'm counting on you for this. Stuff. Maybe, do I have to go to our website to find this? I don't know. Yes we're, yes, we're on episode five. What is our website, Kirk? Uh, unelectables.ca. Unelectables.ca. If you're listening to this, you probably don't need that. Probably not, but you never know. Once in a while, there might be some goodies up there. Uh, I think we're going to post Kirk's grade 12 class photo up there at some point. Now, um... well, I could get that for you. <laughs> So, uh, this is the second special episode we've got uh, post-Rit Drop. The uh, Rit dropped uh, a little over a week ago now. Uh, so, we are on day, I don't know, 812 of the election campaign, or at least that's what it feels like if you're spinning for the UCP. Um, God, it, I mean, this is the longest campaign ever, and this is only a 28-day campaign. <laughs> yes. Yes, so a lot has happened since we recorded last. We're going to dive right into it. Uh, it's worth noting again to our listeners that uh, we are recording remotely right now. So I am at uh, Enlightened Savage World Headquarters down here in New Brighton. And Kirk is in, I want to say, Water Valley. Where are you? Uh, up uh, as far northwest as you can get in the city without being part of uh, the riding of Airdrie Cochrane. There you go. Well, there's nothing interesting happening in the writing of Airdrie Cochran, so at least we've got that. Not yet. Not yet. Now, 
Uh, Kirk, we should make note before we dive deep into anything this week that we are now available for download and subscription both on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. So regardless of your device of choice, you can uh, subscribe to us, you can leave us a comment, you can give us hopefully a five-star review. Five stars would be good. We would appreciate that very much. Just stand there and you're wrong. Listen, be wrong and get used to it. Okay, so Kirk, let's talk about what is going on with the selection. Uh, it has been a little over a week since we last recorded. What has happened in the past week? Uh, holy crap, what has not happened? I feel like we might have to work have to backwards in time because, jeez. So today, there was a lot more spin on, on uh, every side in terms of what is going on with the GSAs, and of course that that happened a few days ago when, uh, or was it yesterday? I it was like 200 days ago when the UCP released their education policy, uh, where they they talked about going to the Education Act, uh, and that um, that has opponents um, seething because uh, Bill 24, I believe it was, um, made some changes that uh, that made it harder for schools to effectively ignore the uh the school act in terms of its of its gsa policy so um basically you know without going too deep into the weeds basically what what's happening is this war of spin where opponents are saying because this will use the education act instead of the school act uh there's a number of things that were put in in there to protect gay straight alliance clubs um, so this would this would basically allow schools to to not have to follow through anymore. And there's talk again about schools uh, notifying parents that their their child is in a GSA. Uh, and opponents, of course, um, have issue with that because there are legitimate concerns for people who uh, do need to hide this from their parents um, for for whatever reason. Uh, and of course. Uh, Proponents of the policy are saying, no, you know, this still has the protections, and, you know, what are you people talking about, and so on and so forth. Right. So it's a it's a nuanced issue, and we could do several episodes of podcasts about it, uh, talking about the, the various ins and outs of the policy. But the, the long and short of it is that as a result of this announcement earlier this week of the UCP education policy and going to that Education Act, there have been actual, honest-to-God, rallies in the streets, both in Edmonton yesterday and today in Calgary. We're recording this on Thursday, the 28th of March, um, with people saying, hey, leave our GSAs alone. It's good. These are a good thing. They're working. They're saving lives. Everything's fine. Don't mess with it. Just leave it alone. Hands off is basically what they're saying to the UCP. And uh, and the UCP is taking, uh, quite rightly, I think, a lot of heat for this. The, the suggestion that they're coming back with is that this is simply reinstating the situation and the circumstances that existed after the successful passage of Bill 10 by the Prentice government. Uh, but, of course, the passage of Bill 10 was not an altogether smooth ride either, uh, with the initial incarnation of that bill, uh, which was in itself a watered-down copy of a bill that Laurie Blakeman, the uh, liberal 
member of the legislature from Edmonton Center at the time, had brought forward uh, offering gay straight alliances and uh, protection for those clubs in schools. Uh, but the PCs, when they brought uh, in under Education Minister Cord Dirks, essentially said, hey, you can have these clubs unless the principal doesn't want to give you a club. Then we'll set you up a club, but it might be off school premises. Or maybe you could, I don't know, sue the school board if you really feel strongly that you want to have it in your classrooms. Uh, to which uh, advocates of GSAs just went, okay, so you want our 16 and 17 year olds to raise money to sue the school board because the school board won't give them a GSA. So, I mean, it's been a long road to get to the point where we can argue about this, but at the end of the day, this is causing quite a bit of pushback uh, just in the last few days since this policy was announced by Jason Kenney. I think it's important to note, I mean, that really GSAs is the important piece to talk about for sure. I mean, this is this is definitely an issue that that is gaining worldwide attention. I mean, I read an article this morning in The Guardian out of the UK about Alberta and the fight for GSAs. But I think it's also important to note, you know, even even though I don't think we're going to talk about it, but as a side note, it is important to note that, that the, the UCP education policy uh, went into many, many things outside of, outside of the GSA piece. I mean, the GSA piece was almost, I would almost say an a consequence of, of the way that they're making this change. Like, it's not like they, they had it in their policy that they're going to be changing the GSA piece. Um, the, the policy was really more about um, reinstating, you know, testing at younger ages and uh, curriculum changes mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. So, so uh, I don't think, I don't think, think there's t- worth, worth a lot of time spending on that because there's some really good commentary on that and I'm not an educator. Uh, but I think I think it is worth noting that wasn't outward against GSAs. Now, whether or not it was intentional or an unintentional consequence, that's up for debate. But certainly, the GSA piece is is the one that is has become forefront and is the important piece really of this talk right now. Um, and then and then you know, there's there's all this other collateral to look at. Well, and this is something that we see quite often when we start to discuss actual policy. Now, I've said millions of times to anybody who will listen that I'm a policy guy. I'm a policy wonk. That's the whole reason I'm involved and interested in politics to begin with. So for me, when parties start talking about ideas, that's that's what I love. But for example, the, the UCP comes out with this, this education policy announcement, and there's, as you pointed out, a lot of stuff in there. It's a really thick, really, really fulsome uh, 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 policy that they brought out, and I don't know that I necessarily agree with a lot of it, but it talked about, uh, as you mentioned, uh, more standardized testing. It talked about um, uh, making sure that teachers are recertifying and they're requalifying and they're, they're being tested to make sure that they're staying up to date on material. It talked about increasing the weighting of diploma examinations uh, from 30% back up to 50, where it was in the 1990s. So it talked about a lot of stuff, but that's all um, sort of esoteric in a way, right? If you're an educator or if you're uh, a parent who's super involved in their child's education, then that's the kind of stuff that matters to you. But when you talk about something like a GSA, when you talk about at-risk kids, 
that really tugs at the heartstrings. And so that is the part of the policy that gets all the attention, while this other stuff that also is important and needs to be discussed sort of gets pushed off to the side because increasing the weighting of your diploma exam from 30 to 50% is not the difference between life and death for a kid, whereas a GSA just might be. And and it is important to note that, I mean, there there are some some really... Um, some really important uh, dis- discussions happening around the education policy. Um, I mean, especially around around the reweighting again of of testing. Uh, you know, when I went to university, most of my courses were actually eighty percent test, twenty percent coursework, or or even worse. Um, and and you know, for for good or for bad, um, that's what I had to deal with uh, at the university level. Uh, I'm not saying that that's what everybody should be subject to. But you know, it, like if if I if I start to go down the policy wonk route, I would say you know it would be really interesting to actually have the have the option or have the best of, where you know you have the the seventy thirty or coursework test, um, but you also have the option for the opposite, mm-hmm. um, right? Like if 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 both were offered, so you could have a seventy percent weighting on your test. Or you could have a thirty percent weighting on your test. Um, so, like, at some point, I would love to get into that kind of discussion. But I think we should we should circle back on these GSAs because it really is a it's it's a human rights issue. Um, you know, I said it. You know, if you remember, we had a conversation years ago during Bill Ten, and I I said you know Prentice would have really looked like the statesman had he he recrafted. Uh, Lori Blakeman's bill, and and if he had had put it in such a way where he basically said, "Look, uh, we want to legislate that any club that is generated by students that is inclusive, so it's not exclusive in any way, and does not breach uh, any of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, so it's it's not." Um, it's not going after anybody's religion. It's not going after anybody's sexual orientation, so on and so forth. Um, if he were to legislate something almost comprehensive on that level, it would have included GSAs, but it would have looked at like this really big statesman piece, right? Like, it, you know, we want to make sure that any club uh, that is inclusive of all students who want to join, so on and so forth, you know, that 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 has the ability to be created and cannot be. Uh, cannot be squashed by the schools. I, I think that would have that would have really I, that might have been the difference. You know, outside of the math is hard comment. Um, you know, so things like that might have been the difference. And so so we're back on on GSAs and, and we're back on on kind of this this very hyper focused look at this where where really it, it comes down to you know is this a charter issue? Is this is this putting lives at stake? Um, you know the the three, the three above questions, I would say yes to, um, but you know, not a lawyer. Certainly, there's certainly things to be said that, like this is this is a very dangerous place. And and to to your comment earlier, I mean, there were two rallies. I I can't remember the last time I saw a rally about an election promise in Alberta. 
No, no certainly a, a nonpartisan rally. I, I, maybe nonpartisan is the wrong word, but it's certainly uh, multi-partisan. Pan, there were people from yeah, there were people from from the Liberal Party. There were people from the Democrats. There were people from the Alberta Party. There were I think there were Greens at these rallies saying, "Hey, you know what? Hands off these GSAs." The the only uh, the only party that seems to be sort of standing by this idea uh, is is the UCP, and I have to wonder uh, if this is one of those issues where even though um, even though GSAs only impact approximately one in ten Albertans in a direct way, if this is one of those things where you know Henry and Martha are watching and they go, well, I don't know. It's it's hard to at this point in time get a feel for what people's uh, uh, ballot question is going to be. But uh, if it comes down to trust and it comes down to social order, uh, that that good old Canadian promise of uh, of uh, good government. You have to wonder if maybe this is going to be making some people's minds up for them. Well, I, I have to wonder if this was a critical error in, uh, oh, what's a good word for this? Let's say tactical politics. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, I've never heard the term, but it sounds like uh, it sounds like it might stick. Yeah. So, so from from the UCP's perspective, so so outside of. Uh, moral issues and outside of the human rights issues and, and so on and so forth. If we if we look at this from a pure policy perspective, one has to wonder if this was a major misstep because the UCP has really, or, or Jason Kenney at least, has really tried to push this idea of the UCP is the big tent, right? Much like the PCs used to be. Um, you know, Jason Kenney has kind of said this is for all conservatives. And and not that there's significant data yet to suggest this, but there is. There's definitely, um, there's definitely hearsay that that there are uh, people who are leaving the UCP, leaving the Conservatives, in a vote standpoint on this issue. And and I'm not talking necessarily about um, people like you or I who used to be members of the PCs. I'm talking about people. People are talking about you know their parents. Um, have voted PC all of their life, and they have decided because of this one policy uh, that they are probably not going to vote UCP. Uh, and and it's it's one of those things where you know there, again, there's no data to support this outside of you know these these odd tweets or comments on on random news articles or whatever. So so there's really you know you have to take this with with a lot of salt. But one has to wonder if this was a tactical misstep, if this pisses off enough of the red Tories that they they put their vote somewhere else, you know, even even hold their nose and vote for the NDP again. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a red Tory, right? And and I would like to pretend that that we're this massive cohort that can just uh, you know swing elections all by ourselves. The reality is though that if if red Tories were good at organizing. And, uh, and and good at uh, being activist in our politics, uh, perhaps there would still be a PC party and a Wild Rose party. Um, we we had the opportunity to stack those delegate meetings and we failed to do so. So, um, you know, uh, it, it could be that this was a strategic misstep. But then again, it could be that this is just the case of uh, Jason Kenney uh, sacrificing some of those red Tory votes for some of those deep blue Tory votes. And what I mean by that is you've got a lot of people, a, a very small but vocal minority of Albertans who really firmly believe that government should not be telling their schools, particularly their religious schools, 
how they should be dealing with the issue of gay straight alliances and gay kids in school altogether, right? And so, but, but is did, is this a way of him... not have those votes? Well, I mean, I I don't know that they did because you, you'll keep in mind that at their founding convention they passed a policy against the suggestion of people like Rick McIver, the MLA for Calgary Hayes, who said, guys, this is a lake of fire bill. Please don't pass this. And they passed it anyway. Um, uh, and that was uh, that was uh, dealing with issues around sexuality as well. But um, now that you've got the Freedom Conservatives, now that you've got the Alberta Advantage Party uh, made up of some of the remnants of Wild Rose, you know, those parties combined will only account for maybe two or three percent of the electorate. But then again, the number of red Tories who actually come out to vote in ridings where it makes a difference to the UCP, I don't know if they're not considering that math a wash. I mean, for me, I would rather win some votes in in the cities where they make up two-thirds of the seats in the legislature, then make sure that I go from 80 to 82% of the popular support in some of the rural constituencies. But that's just me. So moving moving on, um, what else happened this week? Well, I, I mean, you you and I discussed this a little bit before we actually started casting. So why, why, don't, why don't, rather than going too far back in history, because... Uh, there are some other really good uh, podcasts that, that have dealt with a few things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about how there is some actually interesting policy coming out of this election, you know, outside of the the constant attacks on, on the NDP and UCP side. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's face it, both sides are being quite negative in terms of in terms of their their main opponent. But right. you know, this other stuff that's coming out. So so the one that really interested me this morning was from the Alberta Liberals, and we've we've given the Alberta Liberals a hard time on this podcast, Let's deservedly so. Yes. <laughs> so, so I I would I would be remiss to not talk about this. Um, now, I, I didn't look too much into the policy yet. Um, basically, I, I saw saw effectively the the uh, the spin on it, um, but but certainly sounds interesting, and I and I think I think it's worth taking a look, and and I think. I really hope that other parties at least start to look at this. And and basically the crux of what I saw this morning was the Liberals are looking at what they said, eliminating personal income tax for the majority of Albertans. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean eliminating personal income tax completely. Um, in fact, you know, it's very likely that as you hit into the upper quantiles of, of uh, income, you're going to be, you're going to be paying some level of tax, but it, it Theoretically, it would be lowered for everybody, and and nothing for some. Yeah, um, they are looking I'm just at. Gonna, I'm just going to write down that word quantile. I think that's going to score me a lot of points in the words with friends going forward. Perfect. Just yeah. Quantile. Um, well, yeah. Q, Q and and uh, yeah. And and so anyways, two points. Yeah. Uh, so so wait until I get into per mills. And then they were talking about corporate taxes and and dropping corporate taxes and I, and and actually for the life of me right now I can't remember if it was complete elimination or if it was if it was reduction. I um, believe it was you, a reduction, but that begs the question, Kirk. If you're eliminating income tax and you're lowering corporate tax, how is government going to pay for the services it provides to the public? Well, so of course, of course, the other piece that they introduce is an HST, right? So so effectively, a provincial sales tax. Uh, harmonized like like it is in in provinces like BC and Ontario, 
Um, so basically, there will be a combined uh, consumption tax. So so that pre presents a really interesting situation, right? Because because theoretically, the thing with income tax is that you are you know you, the general idea, or or at least the the economic philosophy is that you are taxing people at lower incomes less because a larger percentage of their income is used for necessities of life, right? So mm -hmm. housing, food, shelter, or, well, I guess shelter is housing, uh, clothing, you know, things like that, right? So, right? so the idea is they get taxed less, and then as you hit higher income brackets, um, you are taxed more. And actually, there's, there's good evidence to suggest that that is the spending habits of people as they move through income brackets. Um, so, so the idea is that instead of doing income tax, uh, you are effectively doing the same thing by creating consumption taxes. You are, you are basically able to tax goods, um, and theoretically people with more income will be spending more on, on goods, right? And so, and, and I don't know if the policy looks at, say, food. I know, I know, for example, the G, the GST, um, does not tax uh, non-processed food, right? So, so you're gonna you're gonna pay a, pay GST for that candy bar that you buy, but you are not gonna pay GST for the the, the apples that you purchase, right? Right. And and it's it's around that same philosophy. So basically, what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, effectively reduce um, or in some cases eliminate personal and corporate income tax income taxes and and create these consumption taxes as well. Now. Mm -hmm. Where that becomes a really interesting policy is in terms of economic investment into the province, right? Because the, the thing is, Alberta does not exist in a vacuum. And so we've got this issue with, with oil price being way down, which let's remember, nobody is necessarily in control of that price. There are things that can, can uh, help that price go up and down, uh, economic policy, but certainly you know, Rachel Notley is not to be blamed for the global price of oil drop. Um, so, so there are, we've got this vacuum right now in terms of uh, what type of industry that we, we, we bring in. Um, there are other industries in Alberta. There's lots of other industries in Alberta where we are seeing economic investment. In fact, um, a video game that I do like to play, the, comp the main company that builds that is moving to Calgary. So, so there are these other places that utilize engineers and, and that to, um, to build technology. So, so we've already got some investment that happens that way, but when you lower the corporate taxes and you lower the personal income taxes, that becomes really interesting for people and companies to invest in our province. Mm -hmm. So, so, but, but uh, either way, um, I think, I think the important thing is. You know, it, it tackles a, a lot of things that have been talked about over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, it, it does bring in that PST, which, which people seem to be very gun-shy about, even though there tends to be a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, that would not necessarily be a bad thing for the province. Well, here's the great um, irony, is that Albertans like to fancy ourselves as being this, this conservative bastion of thought. You know, this this place where where we we eat and drink and sleep conservative. And yet almost every conservative economic philosophy demands that you go with a sales tax or a consumption tax as opposed to an income tax. 
right? Uh, taxing, rather than taxing the means of production, you tax the consumption. So if you work hard, you work harder than your neighbor, you get to keep more money. You get to keep more of what you produced. And if you decide to spend it, then you're taxed on that consumption. But if you decide to save it, then you're just way, way, way ahead of the game. Now, there are pros and cons to this approach, most notable being that if you have a place where the sales tax is lower than their neighbors, you will often find people who generate income in one place going to the jurisdiction with the lower sales tax in order to make their purchases. But if Alberta were to bring in a modest provincial sales tax harmonized with the GST, something around, I don't know, let's say spitballing uh, 3%. If Alberta's provincial sales tax was 3%, tacked onto the GST makes it a, a, a straight 8%, uh, you wouldn't have people driving from Calgary to Kelowna to buy a car, but you might have people driving from Kelowna to Calgary to buy a car like you already do. Because you have people yeah. coming from from Saskatchewan, I mean, you think that you think that people aren't uh, aren't buying a lot of their stuff in Lloydminster on the Alberta side of that border just so they can get away from the Saskatchewan sales tax? You bet your butt they yeah. are. The, the question is always always the the pain of of doing something like that versus the gain that you're going to get. And there's always going to be people who will drive you know 500 miles to to go from one place to another. But would they um, drive 500 more? Well, it's only if they want to be the man that, that goes 1,000 miles. Right. Um, so I, I think in the end, it's not really about, about the, the, the value of the policy. I mean, I mean we, we've extolled its value a little bit here. Um, but I think, I think what's really neat about this is the B, right now the, the liberals have, have very likely zero chance of forming government. I would do you uh, one better. I would say they have absolutely zero chance of forming government. I will eat my laptop live on a Facebook live stream if the Liberal Party of Alberta wins government on April the sixteenth. So, so it it it's it's really neat to see this type of policy come out, and hopefully it fosters some discussion. Um, to some degree, this probably came out at the wrong time. Um, because the GSA piece has not gone away. No. And so, so it's going to be buried in this, this uh, the GSA piece, because, of course, there was still the Calgary rally today. Um, but, of course, the, you know, talking about other policy, um, you know, we, we talked about the UCP policy. One of the big NDP policies that came out uh, was, was in terms of their daycare policy. So of mm -hmm. course, there was, there was the experiment that they ran with just over 7,000 daycare spaces, where they did $25 a day daycare. And they have decided to expand this program to effectively the entire province. The idea being that uh, daycares, um, especially, um, I think they said they're going to start with the nonprofit-run daycares um, and then move out from there. But basically, the idea would be they would subsidize the daycares so that daycares are uh, $25 a day, or it, it, you know, it might be less. I I can't remember at this point. Um, this week has been so insane; like, no, no information is sticking in my head anymore. Um, but but effectively the the idea is is to create the subsidized daycare, and you know the the one of the things they said is it's going to create so many jobs and that's kind of been that's kind of been the UCP attacking point when they're not defending themselves on the GSA piece, um, and 
and it's it's you know kind of interesting because what it does is it actually allows let's face it it allows women to enter the workforce because mm-hmm. in most homes uh the woman is going to be the primary caregiver um not all homes you know i've i've done the stay at home dad bit and and it was fantastic mm-hmm. um but but certainly it it will it will cease the argument that happens where it becomes a is it worth going to work or is it worth doing daycare and if if the the price is effectively the same right the if if you're basically making as much as you're going to be doling out, um, then you're starting to look at things like, well, if my child gets sick, you know, then I'm going to have to take off work anyways, and you know, it creates creates a stressful situation, and and it really causes families a lot of problem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and I think you know, I saw I saw a tweet that probably said it best that effectively, you know, the the it came down to women not being in the workforce has effectively oh i'm you know i'm going to get this wrong so i'm i'm not going to quote it um my apologies on that but effectively it, you know it was making the point that that this you know this policy equalizes the playing field a bit which i think is a really important point like if if there's a lot of families who are deciding to keep one parent home uh rather than Rather than uh, sending child to daycare and having two incomes, I mean, there, there's something to be said about the number of jobs. There's something to be said about the number of businesses that are created. Because let's face it, it's, it's you know, not everybody's going to go off and just just take some random job. People are going to create companies. People are going to to put effort into the economy and effectively raise Alberta's GDP. So it's a really interesting policy from that perspective. Um, Absolutely. The now, the, the thing is, though, that the NDP came out with this policy about a week after the Alberta Party came out with their child care policy. Now, of course, there was a lot less uh, pomp and circumstance around the Alberta Party policy because most people, I think, who are reasonable about politics understand that the Alberta Party is extremely unlikely to form government after the next election. However, if they could win a few seats in a minority uh, government situation, they would perhaps have the ability to influence some policy. Um, And their child care policy was going to be province-wide, and it was going to say, um, uh, it was going to provide a voucher based on means, based on a means test, um, and whereas the NDP policy was $25 per day at a maximum, in order to pay uh, uh, more than $25 a day, your combined uh, family income uh, under the Alberta Party policy would need to be $90,000 or more. Um, in, in fact, if you made up to 30000 but not more, uh, which sounds like a minimum wage household, perhaps a single parent situation, uh, daycare would be free it would be fully covered it would be five dollars a day if you made up to fifty thousand dollars so um that's uh that's i think taking the ndp policy just the one step further um and uh and and really saying to people hey you know what like 
we measure your income for a lot of things. We're going into April now, and we're all thinking about how we're measuring our income because we need to tell the federal government how much we made and give them their fair share. Um, and uh, in that same breath, uh, the, the Alberta Party child care policy uh, took that into account, which is a policy that kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people. It, it did, and and I'm I'm actually really glad you brought it up because that's where I was uh, where I wanted to go next. Anyways, uh, what's really interesting about the two policies is it it kind of goes down to that fundamental philosophy of left versus right, right? Like the the idea of the left is, uh, you know, at at a fundamental level from an economic standpoint, it is the government can do more with a dollar than you can, mm-hmm. right? And and the fundamental idea with the right is that it's your dollar. Use it how you feel, right. uh, and 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 then everything else is in between. So the NDP plan is about working with childcare spaces, right? Like nonprofits and and that type of thing, um, and and trying to reduce the price that way. This is is kind of the right wing version of that, which is creating this voucher that is based on need, mm-hmm. and it allows you as a parent to have some choice as to where you want to send your child. So you are no longer you're no longer held to it must be at, uh, shall we say, an NDP-approved uh, daycare space, which could be good, could be bad, depends you know depends on a lot of things, right? There, there could be safety and, and risk and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But effectively, it gives you the, the ability as the parent and therefore uh, market forces to some degree um, to choose where to put your child. And, and so that becomes really interesting. The other thing is, I mean, you, you said it, it goes over $25 if you're over 90000 um, but it's not not significant. I mean, we're talking about a $30 per day max up to 110000 Now, mm-hmm. I don't know anywhere, um, I haven't seen on their site anywhere that actually says what happens if you make over $110,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure what what that becomes at that point if you get no voucher at all. And, and it's possible that something like this could um, could raise demand of childcare spaces and and if supply is not replenished that could mean very expensive childcare spaces for people making over $110,000 but it, it's the same thing with the NDP plan too right Absolutely. is is the the moment that you subsidize this so that people can actually afford it you're simply going to to increase demand so um, that is something to to consider i don't know what what the Alberta Party's plan is for people who make over one hundred and ten thousand. I think, um, I think there are some some definite conservative voters in that in that income demographic that uh, might might take issue with with that type of policy. So mm-hmm. there's something to be something to to consider. But it is it is really interesting. And and again, it's it's these smaller parties coming out. I say smaller in terms of uh, likely support. Of course, the Alberta Party is running a full slate, but smaller in terms of, of that support base that they have, uh, they're coming up with really good comprehensive policy and good or bad, you know, out, outside of the Kim Campbell comment <laughs> of an election is no time to talk policy, the fact is, if this election does nothing else then brings out really awesome policy that, that whatever party wins may may take a serious look at and adopt then that is the entire Dominion system at work. Absolutely. Right? That, like that, that is the ideal, right? Back to that idea of an opposition is not to oppose. An opposition is to, to 
make policy better, to mm -hmm. to question and to to provide context in a way that you know the government might not see. And so, I, it, from from a a hopeful standpoint, especially because this election has already seemingly taken a toll on us, uh, it's 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 hopeful that we're getting some really cool policy out of this election. Absolutely. Well, the best the best. Um quote I ever heard about the role of an opposition was that the opposition's role is not necessarily to oppose, but it is to propose. It is to make suggestions on how things could be done better, or how the government might take a different approach to a subject. Uh, and uh, I mean, two examples that came to mind just in the past week or so, uh, one from the Alberta Party and one from the United Conservatives, dealt with the creation of new ministries or new associate ministries within the government. Now, uh, whether or not either of those parties wins the election, there's certainly ideas worth considering. And the first one I wanted to talk about is, uh, it actually just touches on the subject we were just discussing. It's from the same release from the Alberta Party, the creation of a new ministry of early childhood. So a ministry in the government that would work collaboratively with other ministries, encouraging the healthy development of children during their early years. Now, I am not a parent, uh, that anybody has told me about. You, however, Kirk, are. So I'm going to put this to you. Would the creation of a ministry of early childhood, would the, would the presence of that ministry, when you were just getting the hang of this fatherhood thing, have been useful to you? Potentially. I mean, it's... You know, it, it it always comes down to what the scope is, right, and what what the mandate is of of a particular area. And quite often, what comes out in elections isn't necessarily what comes out later. But certainly, in terms of a steward of information and um and and a place that one could actually go to get um kind of kind of direction as a parent, absolutely. You know things like that are helpful, and and you know does it need its own ministry? Maybe, maybe it doesn't. It's you know that because of course that creates more ministers and and all sorts of things. So there's there's argument that way as well. But mm -hmm. certainly, you know any anything that can can be almost localized to be able to get information in one place becomes helpful for the everyday Albertan. Mm -hmm. Now uh, something that you mentioned creating a, a new minister, that sort of thing. Something that wouldn't create a new minister would, would result in the appointment of a, an associate minister, though, um, sure. but, but would uh, create a dedicated office full of people who were dealing and, and qualified to deal specifically with particular issues came out in the United Conservative Health Policy, which was released today. Um, and that was the creation of an associate minister under the Ministry of Health, specifically focusing on mental health and addictions in the province of Alberta. Now, what do you think? Is this is this so, something that we need? That's really interesting. So, so the entire, well, the world in general has started to recognize the importance of mental health. Um, you know, of course, let's... Bell's Let's Talk has now happened for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I don't think the conversation um, kind of goes past that day on a lot of cases. But but mental health is health, and you know we're seeing more companies recognize that. We're seeing more cases where companies are saying, you know what, if if you are sick, you know it doesn't necessarily have to be that you injured your leg. It could very well be that you are are 
you are down and out mentally. Um, you know, certainly I have gone through my own uh, mental health journey. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, I've I had good doctors and I had good family support to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everybody has that, and 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 having something specifically focused on that, I think, is a really important step for us. Right, and and likewise, I am presently going through that journey. I've uh, I've been diagnosed with uh, a pretty significant form of depression, and so that's a battle that I'm fighting every day. Uh, people often see me tweeting about it or, or facebooking about it and that sort of thing, and uh, and I don't know that. Um, a dedicated ministry or, or associate ministry focused on mental health would necessarily help me or a lot of people on an individual basis, but to be able to hold that lens up to government policy around things like uh, sick days and around labor and around that sort of thing might potentially be useful in the same way that having a Department of Indigenous Affairs having a department uh, focused on the status of women really helps to put forward the idea that we need to consider the effect on this very important group when we're talking about these policies. And and that sort of informs the decisions that government makes as a whole. Now, addictions was the other part of this uh, as, as part of the, the UCP announcement today on health. And this really shows, I think, a, a dramatic shift in the attitude uh, that right-leaning people have had towards addiction in the past. Because um, if you go back even just as recently as 20 or 30 years ago, addiction was viewed as just weakness. You know, I I mean, uh, you're only an addict if you go to meetings, right? (laughs) Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is for quitters. This is the kind of thing that you would hear coming from people who were, you know, um, uh, trying to portray themselves as John Wayne types. Um, and yet now you have um, a policy announcement coming forward from the United Conservative Party in Alberta's most conservative province, arguably, saying, hey, you know what, we need an associate minister who's dealing with this issue because addiction is a health issue. It's not a justice issue. It's not under the Ministry of Solicitor General. It's under the Ministry of Health. Do you think this is so, indicative of a larger shift in the societal view towards addiction, or it might be, it might not be? I mean, I mean, the thing is, I would I would suggest quite strongly that there are a lot of um, there are a lot of conservatives who have real problem with places like addiction sites, right? Like um, where where one when one can go as a safe location um, to to administer yourself ah, your, your, your drug of choice, right? You're talking about supervised consumption size. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so it, it's actually kind of surprising almost that, that they would that, that they would come up with something about addiction. So, so it'd be really interesting to see, you know, where where that sits in terms of um, evidence, evidence-based and, and data-supported policies that traditionally conservative voters have been against right because consumption sites you know definitely there are cases where where there are problems mm-hmm. um but but at the same time there is significant evidence to suggest that they they actually work uh long term right it's it's not the type of thing where somebody goes in to to take in a, a dose of heroin and all of a sudden you know they they see the light and they're they're fine um 
I also think it's really important, though, that that when they talk about the this ministry, that it is part or or the associate ministry, that it is part of the mental health piece because addictions traditionally, as you said, has been seen as a weakness, uh, whereas addictions is really a mental health issue, right? It like it is fighting a similar fight that that mental health has been fighting over the last many years, which is that this is not weakness. That this is that this is something that happens to people for whatever reason, and and we need to deal with it like a health issue as opposed to a a crime issue or something like that. So, you know, that like it, it's one of those things where I'm I'm hesitant a little bit on on kind of where they're going to go with this. At the same time, uh, it is it is nice to see uh, mental health and addictions being treated both in the same space. And as a serious part of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about one of the elephants in the room. It's an elephant that's been in the room forever in Alberta, and this is the elephant of equalization. We've heard the United Conservatives talk about it. We've heard the Freedom Conservative Talk uh, Party talk about it. Derek Fildebrandt's group um, about how we need to cut off the gravy trade. We need to hold a referendum that says to Ottawa, you can't have any more of our money. Now, as a practicality, and I ask this of you because you <laughs> you are a person who is both A, good with math, and B, uh, very well informed on uh, federalism and, and how the federal government works. Kirk, can Alberta just turn off the taps on equalization? Yes, they can. How? However, however, here's the caveat. It would require every Albertan to stop paying their income tax federally and um, somehow not deal with the consequences thereof. Okay. Now, uh, when you say when you say stop paying your income tax, you don't just mean don't file in April. You mean actually go to your employer and say, please stop taking tax off my checks, right? That that's correct. Yes, because because let's because the way equalization works is not a matter of uh, the Alberta government sending a chunk of money, like like writing a check, like to the Receiver General of Canada. You know, here's your sixty million dollars. Right? It it is a matter of the federal government collects income tax from all Canadians and then redistributes funding. Or certain things on a level that is based on uh, what they perceive as need from a provincial level, right? So this is where the haves and have-nots come in. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alberta is seen as a have province, and so basically money doesn't flow to us now. Now, where where equalization becomes this this question, this negative variance, it really becomes this matter of how much money is collected by federal government for income taxes versus how much money gets distributed to Alberta. Mm-hmm. So, so effectively, that that's where that variance comes in. But but it really comes down to like this is this is something where holding a referendum or simply saying Alberta is not going to pay anymore isn't going to do a lick of difference. The funny thing is, the you know the UCP who are one of the ones talking about this are being run by somebody who sat in the federal ministries 
and actually was involved in uh, coming up with the current equalization agreement, the, the current the current formula effectively that the government uses to dole out that money. So so not only is this by somebody who knows intimately how this works, um, it's something that simply cannot be done, and and so effectively it's a lie, right? Like I I don't understand how, you know, and and I. You know, you know me. I I try I try not to to outright say you know this person's a liar, but the fact of the matter is, it is a lie that we can make that change on a provincial level. That will that will actually hold sway federally. So I don't understand why it's happening. I don't understand why somebody who knows better is is putting this forward. So it's I mean, you know, it's funny like like there's better policy to be really angry about mm-hmm. but you can probably tell i'm ramping up here because it's because it's one of those things where it's just like it does not make sense like why are you doing this so i mean alberta is categorized as a have province and there are two parts to that equation right i mean the, the math is really quite complicated i looked at it once and it made my eyeball start to bleed but uh, the long and short of it is that the two major areas that that determine whether or not you're a have or a have not province are your gross domestic product, right, and your earnings capacity as a province. Yeah, the fit, so so it is is the um, so part of it is natural resources revenue. So this is something that was changed mm-hmm. uh, in the last agreement, right? So. So effectively, they they limited um, the how much na- uh, natural resources was used. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that actually reduced Alberta's uh, have status. I mean, there's still a have, but but it reduced it. Um, but basically, yeah, uses uses uh, resource revenue, uh, the gross domestic product, um, the fiscal capacity cap, and uh, and then yeah, looking at at actual payments. Right. Now, uh, I mean, there's nothing Alberta can do about our, our resource revenue, right? I mean, we, we have the resources. That's always going to be uh, working against us on that balance sheet. But the other part of it is, and I think this is something that goes sort of unnoticed by a lot of people, um, is is that uh, that ability, that fiscal capacity cap. The, the province of Alberta has the opportunity, could if it wanted to, uh, increase its intake uh, of of funds by five, six, seven billion dollars a year with the stroke of a pen, uh, if it wanted to. All it would have to do is implement a provincial sales tax, like every other province in Canada has. And I'm not advocating for or against that policy uh, in this statement. All I'm saying is that when Albertan, uh, when Albertans, or when the Alberta government says. Well, you know, we would like to properly fund childcare the way Quebec does, but we don't have the money. Uh, the federal government uh, can just look at Alberta and say, y- "You do have the money. You just don't want to actually take it from your taxpayers. Uh, you want to blame us for that. But if you had a sales tax, you could give everybody free childcare and free university for all you wanted, right? It's it's just a question of." whether you're willing to take the local political hit and charge a tax that you can then turn around and put back into policies and ideas and programs that may or may not be 
uh, successful in your province. But it's easy for us to look at other provinces that are net uh, receivers from the equalization plan and go, well, you guys are just screwing us. But we need to keep in mind in Alberta that the last time that that uh, equation was, was signed off on, we had uh, the Member of Parliament for Calgary Southwest was the Prime Minister, and the Member of Parliament for Calgary Southeast, or Calgary Mindapur, uh, Jason Kenney, was at the Cabinet table as well. Uh, and if Alberta was getting a raw deal then, is it at least possible that that might have been an effort by people who knew they would not lose a single vote in Alberta to maybe make people in places like Quebec more likely to vote for them? Or is that just me wearing my tinfoil hat? Um, well, <laughs> there might be a bit of tinfoil hattiness there. Um, I mean, you know as well as anybody that political decisions are more than just what will what will get votes. Right. Um, I suspect I suspect when they went to the table and they looked at actual financial data um, that they probably came to similar conclusions that you know previous governments have come to, um, which is kind of that Alberta is a have province. I mean, let, let's face it, you know there was a point in time where you know we had actually gotten rid of debt mm -hmm. um you know so you know this this becomes this this other piece where where you know you mentioned a pst might might be a solution you know we have been unwilling as a province to take certain actions ourselves right and we simply expect that the federal government will make things better because uh because we're not getting what we should and mm -hmm. and you know and and we're gonna jump up and down and we're gonna we're we're gonna you know be upset about it, um, you know and and there are parties that that will, you know talk about separation for example as a solution to this and of course that's a solution to that because you know part of part of the part of the whole federation of Canada is the idea that we support each other and so you know yeah if we're if if we're not giving tax uh, money to the government of Canada, then, and and we're giving it only to the province of Alberta. Then, well, sure, you know, we we don't have this this effective deficit, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if if Alberta was its own country and it taxed at the exact same rate that the government of Canada does, then theoretically it has more money in in its coffers to be able to do more. Absolutely, in a vacuum, um, you know. But we we belong to a much larger country. We belong to a country that is that has a general positive image throughout the world, um, you know, maybe some some things happening in Ottawa aside. Uh, so, you know, it it becomes this question of net benefit, and and I certainly am not a separatist by any means, um, but I can see where the I can see where the appeal is, right? I can see where where people are going. This isn't fair. You know, this was money that was in Alberta and is no longer in Alberta, and therefore we're going to do something about it. But that's not what a referendum on equalization is talking about, right? When you know, Jason Kenney is not saying, uh, or, or maybe that is, maybe that is the secret secret message. But but really, it's it's not saying you know, in in a couple of years, if we don't we don't get our share, then we're going to separate. It's, it's we're going to have a referendum on equalization. Well, what does that mean? Because that that literally does not make sense in terms of how the division of powers works from a government of Canada perspective. 
Mm-hmm. So at this point, holding a referendum in Alberta on equalization is like my neighborhood community association holding a vote as to whether or not um, there should be a high-speed rail link between Calgary and Edmonton. I mean, great. We we got everybody's opinion, but what my community association says in no way binds the government of Alberta to change the way it's doing things. Yeah, so so there's absolutely no... there's, there's, There's no teeth in it. And you and I both know uh, referendums cost money, right? Mm-hmm. And and I believe I I'm gonna have to to go back in in some messages. But I, I, you had a really good quote, and and so you know you can cut this out in the edit if you want. But I, I thought it was hilarious, and it was something to the effect of uh, referendum is Latin for um, I don't want to do my job as a politician, or I'm afraid to do my job as a politician, so I'm gonna put it to the people, so I'm not blamed for this later. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it kind of comes down to that too like we can have a referendum but does it really mean anything yes or no um the problem is from an alberta perspective we actually have a history of of doing things that don't actually impact later and yet it's worked anyways and and i'm talking specifically about when we have elected senate members in alberta elections right right because the federal Senate is not is not an elected body; it is an appointed body, right? It's the it you know for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we've had these elections uh, for senators and people who have been elected as senators. Um, some of them have actually been chosen as senators, and so I I wonder if there's kind of a level in Alberta of yeah that might not be the way it works, but you know. We're gonna do it anyways, and yeah. and see what happens. And so, so maybe that's what this is too, right? It's kind of like we're gonna do this the Alberta way. Well, we're we're tilting at windmills, and uh, in the old uh, old Ukrainian proverb, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. Right. All right. So uh, we have now uh, nineteen days left in the interminable uh, Alberta election of two thousand nineteen. Now, in 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 election in election years, uh, that works out roughly to one thousand seven hundred and thirty-two uh, days that it will feel like. Yes, so we're we're just about at the halfway point now. What do you expect we're going to see as we look forward, say, the next seven days? Um, we're we're not in the home stretch. I'm not even certain that we have a leaders debate set yet, but what do you think uh, we see the party starting to do or change about the way they're doing things in the next week or so? Um, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Uh, I'm actually <laughs> going to be I'm going to be away during that time and and completely incommunicado. So, um, so I, I don't really care. Um, but but realistically. Um, we're going to hit a point where we're going to start getting really close to uh, the advanced election date. Um, and so usually you want to have your policy effectively set out before those dates, right? You, you, want, uh, you want every single person who is going to the polls to, to have what they need um, by then. And of course, just to remind our listeners, advanced polls start on April 9th. Right, so we have effectively um, a week and a half of of days until we hit 
the advanced poll day. So we are going to see now the majority of policy being released. The stuff that hasn't been released yet, or, or at least even the stuff that hasn't really been, been publicized that much, that's going to happen. The second thing that's going to happen is is these attacks are going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Right? That, so so there, I saw some, something the other day that said that pundits are, are saying that the NDP should really stop with their attacks on the UCP because it's not working. Um, but I don't know that there's been a lot of official polls happening in the last few days. And and we know that, that attacks work, unfortunately. Uh, so I think you're going to see UCP and NDP just dig right in, and they're going to dig in their heels and keep firing at each other. I think it provides the Alberta Party, the Alberta Liberals, um, and, and whomever else, um, you know, Derek Fildebrand's party, and, and so on and so forth, um, they will have the ability to put out some policy like they have currently. It won't get a lot of press, but again, it, it might it might help steer some things. Um, so we're going to see a lot of policy, uh, but we are going to see those attacks just just continue firing across. Um, the you know the piece that we talked about first today, the GSAs that has legs. I mean, it's it it is not over, and it continues to be a dominant force in terms of the the election zeitgeist. Well, yeah, point. I mean, it's it's the 24-hour news cycle, right? And we're now on hour 72. Like, this has been going on for several days now, and it's it's been at the forefront of conversation. People are talking about it at McDonald's and at Tim Hortons. I know because I've been standing in line in both places over the past couple of days, and people are talking about it. Um, and, and that's not something I normally hear. I don't hear a lot of social issues when I'm standing in line at those places. Um, and, uh, and, and for this to be coming up during an election is probably not helpful, at least not, not being discussed in the, in the terms I was hearing, um, uh, to the UCP. Now, there are two other things I wanted to touch on briefly. We're going to go quite long this episode, but I think it's important because there are a lot of issues coming up and we only get an election like this once every so often, unless we get a minority government and then maybe we can do this again in six months. Wouldn't that be awesome? Um, the first is uh, hey, we were we were almost in two elections at once. Okay, so yes, and it could still happen. Um, <laughs> so the the first thing I wanted to talk about is the leaders' debate. As I said, uh, as of the recording of this, which is uh, the evening of Thursday, the twenty eighth, I'm not aware that the leaders' debate has been set yet uh, for the provincial election. However, the standard has been in past that parties that had um, an elected MLA could participate in the leaders' debate. If that's the case, uh, then in the strictest sense of the word, the UCP, the NDP, the Alberta Liberals, the Freedom Conservative Party, and the Alberta Party would all be on the debate stage. That's five. That's that's assuming, of course, though, that we're not talk that that we're not using the Alberta legislature definition of a party. Right. Uh, so if we're using the Alberta legislature definition of a party, there's only two. That's right. right. Which is the uh, United Conservatives and the NDP. It literally becomes a two horse race, at least as far as the television viewer is concerned. Now, the the other possibility is that uh, the ruling will be you have to have 
MLAs who were elected as members of that party, in which case we would have we would have the um, uh, the NDP, the United Conservatives, barely. <laughs> um, the, hey, uh, hey, look, look, just because it doesn't happen in a general election doesn't yeah, mean it didn't happen. That's true. The uh, um, Alberta Party, right, because Greg Clark was elected yep. uh, as Greg. an Alberta Party member. And the Alberta Liberals, even though their one and only elected MLA from 2015 is retiring, um, they've they're running candidates and they're they're you know appearing on the opinion polls, not very high, but uh, not much lower than the Alberta Party either. Um, so that would be four, and that would uh, that would only eliminate the uh, the Freedom Conservative Party. So Derek Fildebrandt as their leader uh, from the stage. Uh, do you think that we're going to get a big leaders debate or do you think this is just going to be a case of you know what um all the polls are saying it's it's rachel or it's jason let's just get rachel and jason up there you know i i don't know like it you know it's there are so many things that happened in the last four years that it's really hard to come up with a comprehensive rule uh without being biased to some degree right uh, because, you know, we mentioned all of those potential options and all of them really come with a level of I believe X and therefore, you know, this should happen. So it's it's really hard to say. It's also hard to say whether or not we'll actually get one. I mean, you know, in the end, somebody has to, to want to do it and, and they are going to have to deal with this question. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Now, leaders' debates especially on the Alberta side, tend to happen pretty late in mm -hmm. in the process, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, the last one actually happened after the advanced polls had opened. So people, right. had, so people had voted before they even saw the leaders debate. So, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's hard to say what will happen there. Yeah. The, the other question I wanted to, to bring up, or, or topic at least, um, is... Uh, around the the voting, and particularly the advance voting, we got news this week that the advance ballots would not be counted until the counting wouldn't even start on those until the next day, the day after the election, so uh, the 17th of April. And the reason for this is um, Election in Alberta made a change this election so that uh, for convenience's sake, if you are anywhere in Alberta and you want to vote ahead of time at the advanced polls, you can stop at any polling station. They will mark you off the voters list and you can vote right there, which is great. And you can cast a vote for your uh, local race. They'll actually look you up on the voters list, determine, hey, you live in Calgary Northwest. They will print you off a Calgary Northwest ballot, even if you're in downtown Edmonton and you can vote for your preferred candidate from Calgary Northwest, drop it in a box, and that's great. That's a lot more convenient. But <laughs> the, the challenge is then they take all of those advanced votes that were cast everywhere in the province. They truck them up physically to Edmonton. Uh, and the voting will start in the, on the afternoon after election night. So we saw something like eight ridings in Alberta that were won by 200 votes or less in 2015. Um, if there are thousands of advanced ballots cast in your constituency and 
you've got a, a, a gap of two or 300 votes after the, after the election day votes are counted, you might be waiting up to, according to Elections Alberta's um, uh, statement earlier this week, you might be waiting up to a week to find out whether or not your side won or lost that constituency. And if that happens across enough constituencies, we might have a week where we don't know who won the election. Yes. Is that not crazy? It is. And and I know what the I know what the knee jerk reaction is going to be to that. Well, because I've um, already had it. Let's just yeah. vote online. We can bank yeah. online. I just filed That's, my taxes online. Is it the best or the greatest? Um, I I actually just saw an article from Australia where their online voting system went down on election day, uh, which is kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know that there are ways to co- count vote votes faster there are actually ways to do electronic voting not online voting electronic voting that can cast uh, that, that can count the vote uh and still pr- produce a voter verifiable uh ballot a paper ballot mm-hmm. right like there are ways to do this and 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 there's actually some really cool creative uh use a lot of complicated math ways of doing this that are really cool in my world now did we uh, not without, without being online elections did right? we not so, just do this in the municipal election or did i imagine that where we, yeah, so we were, filled out there, these scantrons and then it counted it immediately after it was submitted so that was the referendum that was the or, or the um plebiscite oh that's on, right for the olympics uh for the olympics yes um now i i do want to make the point that there was no uh, paper receipt given back or anything to indicate that it counted the vote correctly, which, which bugged me completely. Like I, the, I was, I was pissed off for the rest of the night after I cast my ballot in, in that, uh, in that, um, plebiscite, um, because there are there are plenty of ways to do electronic voting and still provide some level of me being able to look at something and go, yes, that was counted properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that drove me nuts. But anyways, like so, so there are ways to handle this. It is crazy that we are doing this. I understand the power of of advanced voting, and and there there's something to be said about you know this is kind of uh, pro and con world, right? Like the more advanced days that you have, uh, especially because you've got both work day like what traditional work days and weekends. Um, you know, you you provide a lot of opportunity for people who work shift work. You provide a lot of opportunity for people who couldn't get to the ballot, you know, any other way. You provide opportunity for individuals who are disabled and and require, you know, assistance. Uh, like there's there's a lot of opportunity in more advanced voting, open longer hours, so on and so forth. This seems to be a consequence of that, and not implementing. An additional countermeasure at the same time. Um, I can't speak to election in Alberta's process in in making this decision, but it certainly feels like a long time. Like like it almost feels like what happens when you go to judicial recount, right? Like like where <laughs> like I, I'm kind of envisioning that at this point that that all of the advanced ballots are going through some additional process that isn't happening at the normal polling night because. You know, I've been a scrutineer for plenty of elections where you're sitting there and you're watching them count the votes, and pretty much they just, you know, you you basically put which which person is is in which pile, and 
you create piles of however many and, and you just go through counting that way and then scrutineers can watch the whole thing and, and do that. And with any, luck, with any luck, your candidate doesn't lose by like 11 or 12 votes. Not that that's ever happened. It's never um, happened. But, but you know, like it, for it to take a week for advanced ballots, yes, there are more advanced ballots. Yes, they have to sort out uh, which came from where. That you know that is definitely where part of that process is, but for it to take that long, it feels to me like like that's almost judicial recount level, where where you know every person gets to look at the ballot and has to sign off on it, and anybody who who has an objection to any one of those ballots um, can object to it, and then it goes in a separate pot, like all of that crazy stuff that happens in the, in the judicial recount world. So it is a little weird to me. Right, and it's exacerbated, I think, by the fact that every campaign worth their salt is pushing their most devout, hardcore uh, supporters to vote at the advance polls. No campaign wants to wait to election day to have their voters go out. You want to make sure if you've got a thousand names on your list, first of all, if you have a thousand names on your list, you're going to lose. I'm sorry to break the news to you. But if you've got a thousand names on your list, just for the simplicity of the math, you are working your butt off to make sure at least 800 of those thousand people have voted at the advance poll. Right, because you don't yep. want to leave it to the last minute. Now they've got car trouble. Now that's one less vote. Now that's one less vote. And we had writings in the last election swing by less than 10. So you want to make sure that everybody's out early. And with these added hours, with this added flexibility and this added convenience on uh, voting ahead of time at the advanced polls, it's not outside the realm of possibility to imagine that some of these writings are going to have two, three, four, five thousand votes cast uh, at the advanced polls easily, maybe more, and those ballots are going to be manually counted a day or two or three after the election. It just boggles the mind. I, I suspect where some of this is is kind of coming from a, a conservative, not party-wise, but a, a conservative estimate from, from Elections Canada where, or Elections Alberta, where they're considering that there will be a lot of ridings where people are voting for other ridings. I mean, the, the, the thing is, if if generally everybody votes in their their general area, um, it's likely not going to take that long. I, I think they're kind of just de they're at, it's the anticipation and it's the not knowing what's going to happen from the perspective of how many people you know, who vote in Calgary Northwest are going to go up and vote in, in Edmonton Meadows, for example, right? So that might be where part of it is. Who knows? I mean, if, if I want to be tinfoil hatty, I might say that this is Elections Alberta's attempt at getting in online voting that, you know, they're saying, oh, it's going to take so long to do this. Whatever could we do? Um, you know, in the end, it just it is a, a significantly long time and longer than it probably needs to be. Um, and my guess is that it actually will not take that long. Um, well, it's more of a just be prepared. Yeah. Well, if you're from uh, Calgary Northwest and you're voting in Edmonton Meadows, you're only driving slightly further than the conservative candidate in Edmonton Meadows is. Um, <laughs> oh, hey. oh, sorry about that, That's... Len. I'd be easier on you if you had given me a winning football team to cheer for. So, now... so I, I'd like to talk to, to 
a couple of things, if if I if I may. Absolutely. Um, because we we talked about what's going to happen in this election. I do want to point out, um, while we have had a number of um, things said in the past by candidates cause issue, we've actually seen very little in terms of bozo eruptions. Um, like we have in some other areas. Now, there's lots of time left, and and if you remember correctly, you know, a reason why why former Wild Rosers might want to push people to advance polls is to avoid, you know, Huntsburg and Leach situations. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, outside of the, the UCP pastor who was talking about the Bible quote about submitting mm -hmm. uh, to, your, to your husband, um, there actually has been relatively few real bozo eruptions, which which has been interesting so far, and, and we've got a lot of election to go, so, you know, chances are we're going to see that. Um, you know, any thoughts on that? Well, I think that the difference between this election and what we saw in 2012, the Lake of Fire election, is that unlike in 2012, when the leader of the Wild Rose Party, Danielle Smith, said, I'm not going to fire these candidates, they're, they're entitled to their opinions, um, we have seen now at least on a couple different occasions, um, these bozo eruptions, if you will, from conservative candidates in particular, and uh, almost immediately uh, the candidate has resigned or has been told no. they're resigning. Um, so, so I do, I do want to point out though mm -hmm. that it has that has happened with the female candidate. Yes, the two. So, so, so in those cases. They they stepped down or were asked to right. Um, but the times we've seen it with the male candidates, um, there's been a number of cases where they stay where they are, and I think it's important to point that out. Right now, I don't know if that's because of the perceived seriousness of the transgression, or if there sure. might be a double standard at play there. But I know in the case of uh, in the case of the candidate who stepped in for Kaylin Ford in Calgary Mountain View, right, as I was listening, uh, or, or rather reading what he had said about uh, wives submit to your husbands and that sort of thing, um, that didn't particularly set off any alarm bells for me because I recognized that as a Bible passage. And he was speaking in a capacity as a pastor doing a, doing a homily. So to me, that was no more um, uh, blatantly... Uh, misogynistic or political than anything I ever heard on a Sunday at St. Bonaventure Church. Um, it was just sort of the language I would expect to hear from, from somebody who was quoting out of a book that was written a couple thousand years ago. Um, sure. But... And, and, and that, that I think I think there's a lot of people who come with that approach. Mm -hmm. And and so it's, it's valuable to, to mention that whether or not you agree with it or Right. Now, but uh, on the on the larger scale of things, I think that the parties have gotten very good at message control. Now, I don't think that's a good thing for democracy, in my opinion. Um, but they've they've gotten very good at saying, "Look, here's what you are to talk about. Here's what you are to not talk about. The repercussions if you stray from the script will be swift and will be severe." Uh, and it's why, for example, you see fewer candidates taking part in all candidate forums or debates. Because if you want to hear what I stand for, you wait until my leader tells me what I stand for. 
which, again, yeah. I think is a terrible thing for democracy, but it is sort of the way that things are going now. And when you have parties coming forward saying, for example, hey, if you want to cross the floor, you need to quit your job and go up to six months without a paycheck um, just because you don't like what the leader is telling you to do. Um, that's bringing a level of control to the situation that I don't know is necessarily a positive thing for the democratic process. Oh, I agree completely. Um, so what, one other thing I want to bring up, um, because I think it's really important, is uh, there is a lot of um, misinformation that seems to be uh, traveling online about voting rules. I don't know if you've seen this. I'm not but, sure. But the, there is a post that seems to have been uh, making the rounds that says that, uh, uh, well, it explicitly blames Rachel Notley for creating a system where you must be registered to vote before Election Day or you cannot vote. No, and, I haven't seen is, this. Yeah, so, so of course that went out and, and that is a, a blatant lie. Um, so effectively you... You are encouraged to be registered to vote because it makes it a lot easier for Elections Alberta to do its job. Um, and that has been the case for a very long time. Uh, but if you are not registered to vote, uh, bringing in the appropriate ID, and I don't have the list with me right now, but certainly it's available on the Elections Alberta website, um, you can go and vote. Right? Like that, this is not a process uh, like the Republic down south. So. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really important that, that people know that, that there, one, that there are not these restrictions in play, and two, blaming one party or another, and I don't care if it's blaming the NDP or blaming the PCs before or whatever, um, if, if these are not restrictions in place, then it's just a blatant lie. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, it's still possible to register to vote if you go to elections.ab.ca. Uh, uh, one of the first things you see there is a link on uh, registering to vote. Um, you can also get a list of the appropriate information that you would uh, need to bring with you in order to register on site. But your Alberta driver's license uh, would be good. Photo ID uh, is always good. If you've got a passport or your driver's license or an Alberta ID card, that would be great. Um, you can show up to the polls and you can vote. Uh, voting in Alberta is very easy to do. All you have to do is show up to the poll and bring your ID with you. Uh, if you just moved, bring a bill and you're fine. But those those voting requirements can be found on Elections Alberta. Don't believe what you read on Twitter. Don't believe what you read on Facebook. Don't believe what your second aunt emailed you and the rest of the family. Just go to the source. I mean, that little device in your hand that you're listening to us on has the has access to the sum of all human knowledge on it. And we use it to send cat videos and retweet lies. So just use it to go to the source. And it's so much simpler. Elections Alberta is not a partisan entity. It is not part of a grand government government of Alberta conspiracy to get Rachel Motley reelected. It's not a bunch of lefties. It is a nonpartisan operation whose only job is to make sure that elections are conducted fairly and properly. And whoever wins is completely secondary to them. So they're not going to give you incorrect information because they're cheering for one team or the other. 
they're just going to give you the information you need. So I'd encourage people to go there and check it out. Okay. So, you know, I think I think we've covered a lot today. Of course, a lot has happened. Um, um, it has, and uh, a lot more is going to happen. As you said, uh, we have about six more years in uh, in election days of uh, of of writ period before the uh, before the actual votes are counted, and and maybe up to a week after <laughs> to, to figure so, out if 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 we don't know who won the election on the seventeenth of April, I think you and I should just do a live cast. And stay on the air as long as it takes to get a result. <laughs> uh, we're gonna have to take donations for some sort of cause if we're gonna do that, because that feel that feels like a <laughs> that, I, that feels like a, a horrible, horrible idea. I will tell you now, it's gonna have to be sponsored by Red Bull and possibly um, I don't know, just for men. Because if I go two or three days after the sixteenth and I still don't know who the government is, you're gonna start to see great coming out. All right, well, Joey, I, I think that's going to wrap it for this episode. Uh, just about. I do have an important question for you. Online voting, a great idea or the greatest idea? <laughs> well, geez, if it's going to take us 10 days to, to count these ballots, then why don't we just let the rations do it for us? Sounds good to me. Um, before I let you go, Kirk, and uh, and you sail off on your wonderful time away, uh, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our campaigns as they start to turn the corner into the second stretch of the election campaign? Yeah. Um, take the high road. Always take the high road. Um, the parties are going to do their attacks, right? Like, there's going to be the, the central campaign. But, you know, there's there's something to be said about... Uh, being a good person on the campaign trail, I have I have seen some some great pictures on Twitter of uh, candidates meeting each other out door knocking and you know and and hugging each other and that everybody is out there to make Alberta better. Um, they might be doing it a way that you think is horribly wrong and frankly could be um, illegal in some ways. But in the end, um, it's people. People are doing this because they're they're envisioning something better. And so, be a human, be a person, um, be be good to each other. Take the high road, and and you know, after election day, um, it's it's sometimes worth uh, having a beer or or a non-alcoholic drink um, with with. Uh, one of one of your opponents, all of your opponents, um, and and commiserate in the end. You you're all in this battle together. Uh, you are opponents. You are not enemies. Absolutely, that's a that's a popular refrain that we've heard time and again at our Poly Wings events, and uh, I I can't say it any better. So uh, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, I am the enlightened savage Joey Oberhofner, and I'm and I'm it, and we are the the unelectables.
took a pass on you. Now I'm stuck on this podcast with you. Podcasting with this fool. Hey, hey, hey. Your mom says I'm cool. Unelectable. In every